Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. Victor. Foxtrot. Authentication. Tell the golf. I say again. Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. This is collapsed help. From London, England. A podcast about mysteries, the paranormal, and phenomena. You are listening to Anomaly. Here is your host, Glitters. Hello and welcome to another episode of Anomaly. It's been a long time since our last one, and I promise that we're going to try and make them more regular from now on. I'd like to go back a couple of years to August the 16th, 2020. That evening I was parked up in the Essex countryside and for the first time in my life I saw a massive black cat. It was bigger than a Labrador, it was about half again as long as a Labrador and it was nonchalantly walking through a field just near where I was parked. At one stage, it sat down and stared right at me and my blood went cold. I reached out to a couple of people that night. I reached out to Paul Sinclair, who told me to get off the phone and start filming it. I did exactly that. Later that night, I reached out to Rick Minter of the Big Cat Conversations podcast. He was very helpful, put things into perspective a little bit for me, and subsequently, I was interviewed for his own podcast. And this evening, I get chance to return the favour. After an afternoon of placing game cameras out in the countryside of Essex, we sat down and recorded an interview in a pub car park. I apologise in advance for the sound quality. There was some interference from a mobile phone. However, after a little bit of editing, it's definitely listenable. So sit back and enjoy the interview with Rick Minter. Well, Rick, it's been lovely being with you today. Uh, we've spent a nice afternoon in the countryside with uh, the sun shining, and it's just been a great day, really. We've been out putting some trail cams about. Just interested in your thoughts on how it's gone. Well, I always think whatever results we get from a trail cam will be interesting because we'll just see wildlife doing its own thing day and night, particularly at night. And so trail cams have got to be good working at night, good illumination. And you learn from that, you learn how sensitive the deer are, you know, where the deer trails are. Have you guessed right with your cameras? Have they been on deer trails that are going to be active or not? And you've got to get out and learn and look for signs, and you're not going to do that sitting in front of your computer and nitpicking other people's work. So um, get out and do it for real and um, just uh, muddle through, basically. So, uh, And you might have to go back and reposition those trail cameras or whatever, but... You know, you're getting, you'll get a feel for what's going on there wildlife-wise from knowing that bit of land over the next few years and those cameras will be very helpful in doing that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, and, and, and of course, I think it's fair to say that getting an idea of where to site those cameras in the first place is generally as a result of somebody having come to you with a sighting. And um, is it quite often that you would have the actual witness to come to you or would it be anecdotal you know just handed down in terms of actual locations where somebody like me would follow up and, and maybe put trail cameras it's almost always yeah somebody's pointed you to it because they saw something whether it was a, a credible big cat sighting or a dead deer carcass which ticked the boxes for likely cat involvement so yeah it's not like 
I would be tracking in the open countryside than have found something myself. I think it's too much, you know, that it's too much of a blank canvas for yeah. that, and there aren't that many cats. There's not going to be that many signs. You've got to be pointed to it. And then it's about getting trust. We might come on to this in what else uh, we've got to talk about later on, but a big a big part of it is being trusted because there'll be plenty of people perhaps who don't let on about what's going on around the corner from where they live or on their land because they simply don't want people investigating and uh, the, you know and, and dealing with a rebound from from that. So if you let people know, it's going to be all very sensitive and low key, and you know take it slowly and not rush in and. Um, you're on their side you're just trying to help them uh, and they're trying to help you learn about this subject and they've got the chance because they own the land or they've got access to the land and you go go sensitively with them I think that's the thing to do so it's so much indirectly working with local people and landowners and getting their trust and commitment Mm. It, it makes sense doesn't it that people don't want to bring trouble to their own door if you've had a big cat sighting, it's, it probably takes something to even mention it to your family before you mention it to somebody who's actually working in that field. But, and, and at that stage, of course, they probably don't even know that somebody like yourself exists. Yes, so. I, I think a lot of witnesses, uh, for a lot of witnesses, it's out of the blue. They've got no context for it. It's right out of their comfort zone. And some people do say that they had a sighting, told their other half, and their other half says, thank God you mentioned that, I saw it three months ago, down the track sort of thing. So people even, yeah, keep it close to themselves and don't even mention it much in the family. I mean, the people we've met today, one of the the son of the lady didn't believe her until much later on when he found some evidence. And that's what happens. You get families can be uh, very split on this and and be very um, scoffing until they're all sort of exposed to it more fully. I think it is um, such a bolt from the blue for people and they're not they're really unaware of how stealthy these animals are in their native countries you wouldn't expect to, if you lived in the western one of the western states of north america you wouldn't expect to see a cougar a, a mountain lion no. as a normal citizen but we don't sort of know that over here we assume that these are big fierce animals and you're going to encounter them sometimes but no they have to be stealthy they're ambush predators they keep themselves to themselves they keep out of trouble I was on a podcast uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the Astonishing Legends podcast, and uh, the one of, one of the co-hosts of that, a guy called Forrest Burgess, he lives um, in Los Angeles, where they've got big cats uh, near the Griffiths Observatory. P twenty two, yeah, P twenty two. He's yeah. very uh, um, a very um, celebrated cat because they've got got him. Um, on, tra- on trail cameras, they know where to put the trail cameras. He's radio collared, and they know the underpasses he goes to. So yeah, he's done a lot for awareness raising. So, so I understand that there's two or three, and uh, I think it's P22 that's actually getting on in age now. He's he's really getting up there in years, um, you know. But it, when the the tracker is released, something like 24 hours or 48 hours after the animals moved through, and it comes as a bit of a shock as just to how close people were to him. Yeah, I mean, they sometimes know from this tele- telemetry, it's called, isn't it? The, yes. The data from the radio collared uh, graphics, uh, graph material, that some of these cats have been dozing, sleeping, resting a few metres from the edge of trails where people are cycling and and, um, and with their toddlers, you know, all day. And the, and the cats are just waiting there for the white-tailed deer, deer and the mule deer to come out at night. 
close to humans with their families all day long. It says a lot about the mindset of the uh, big cats that they're just not fussed by humans as long as we're leaving them alone. Yeah, uh, in normal circumstances, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Which brings me on really to a couple of things about you. You run a podcast about big cats, and how long have you been doing that for now? That is about, what, nearly, coming up to year three now, yeah. So we're on episode 75, we'll be hopefully going out tonight. So it's fortnightly normally. So it's good. And uh, just tell us a bit about your podcast. Well, it... It's really about speaking to witnesses. I was speaking to witnesses for many years and uh, somebody said to me, why don't you make a podcast out of this? Then more people can hear about this and learn from it. And of course, other other people speak to witnesses as well. But I felt, well, yeah, especially as my son is um, into sound technology and he could help on, the, on that side. I mean, obviously, I do more of the technology side of it as well now that I've learned the ropes. But yeah, so we talk to witnesses sometimes it's a great case from the past sometimes it's a great case from almost live like when you were on you were you'd had one the week before and you'd actually uh, recorded yourself at the at the event so they vary in uh, the date of them and the um, the type of sighting sometimes they're a bit sort of close up and um, too close for comfort but those make it more dramatic but we make the they point do. We make the point that those are less representative, but you could still, you know, learn a lot from the behaviour of people. Uh, I, I think I had a lot of. I think the thing we learn, I think, is not to overreact. I think so many people do play it cool because there's something. Um, yeah, there's almost a defence mechanism to play it cool, and if you overreact, you could aggravate, you know, a, a cat which could, uh, which is always going to win the battle with you. But yes, and and thankfully, I mean, I I don't know as a fact, but I mean, are there ever been any uh, recorded uh, big cat attacks on humans in the UK? Some alleged ones, yeah. And okay. we, I have to say, we are trying to interview one or two of those people, the, the more credible ones, but they're they're difficult to substantiate. So over time, with the podcast episodes, we hope there's a range of types of witnesses, range of types of circumstances, of sightings and encounters. So one frustration, for example, is we haven't had, despite being on episode 75, an episode with fishermen. And fishermen are likely to see big cats, experience big cats. So it's on my list of, you know, in the relatively near future, it'd be great to get a couple of fishermen on and um, compare and contrast their reports. The current one just going out is called View from the Train. It's got a train driver's sighting and a train passenger's sighting. And that's um, representative because people do see them on trains, train drivers do see them. So you know, it will have a range of um, situations where big cats are encountered, a range of witness types of um, people who are perhaps got a slightly better chance of seeing them because of their occupations and situations. It must make you quite adept at talking to people in situations which are perhaps a little stressful or embarrassing for them. And um, So I, I wonder where you've picked up those skills as you've gone. Where, where does Rick Minter come from? What did you used to do? Okay, well I was a what is called a, a sort of policy wonk, a policy analyst in for a government agency, uh, analysing and... Um, uh, and devising policies and procedures for managing the countryside, for helping nature be managed better on nature reserves, for helping landscapes be more 
environmentally friendly in the way they're farmed. So training and grants and compensation payments, all that sort of thing. So a lot of liaison with other organisations and groups and representatives of users of the countryside, owners of, of land. So often I would be negotiating with these people and their organisations to get a compromise solution to making the countryside managed in a more environmentally friendly way but also working with community groups and facilitating meetings and you get to sort of just get rapport with people and try and get their trust and engagement and be happy to compromise and um, and also um, knock back your own expectations and intentions and arrogance sometimes yeah. so you know makes you more humble than you want to be sometimes but play it cool it's, 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 it's a good skill to have as an interviewer yeah 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 yes you must um in a way you're still managing and trying to influence the dialogue and setup but you're not dominating it and you you know you're part of that you're facilitating other people to learn from the person you're audience you, who's you're listening to because there's a there's a wider audience so you've got to remember you're representing that wider audience what questions does that wider audience want to have asked what do they want to hear about yes absolutely you have to wear more than one hat to do it so you've moved on from your previous career now pretty much you were telling me earlier on about country fairs where you, you were putting yourself out there as a well, I don't know if spokesman's the right word, but what would you call yourself? Is it a point of contact for this topic or an advocate? Yeah, I, and I suppose the actual stall, I would call it an information um, stall rather than an education stall because I get educated from it. It's not like I'm, I'm there to educate other people. It's a two-way thing. I've, you know, I now have a fair bit of experience in this subject. Well, I've learned that experience really from other people from from their skills and their experiences and put it all together to try and fit a bigger picture from all the examples I have and all the different skilled people I've met at zoos and and uh, who, who know about big cats or tracking them so I'm trying to sort of facilitate people to learn together and so landowners and farmers and informants on big cat information I think are happy to discuss it if they feel it's going somewhere and you know we are contributing to a bigger picture so they're telling me about their sighting well they know that I can help them put put it in perspective uh, of course Facebook groups are doing that there's other people who take reports and, and give feedback so, and it's all good it's all helpful so the trust and I think if you put yourself out there at an information stall at a rural show and you show that you've got something to offer because people might learn a bit from you and you'll learn and might follow up from them it's a it's a it's a partnership it's a two-way process and I think that's fine you're not just milking the public for what they can give to you no indeed I, I see it also potentially as a way of breaking down any barriers that people may have had where they've had a, uh, a preformed idea about the subject the fact that it's at a country show is bringing it right to them and uh, they go well, well maybe it's not so crazy after all because we're, we're not talking about ghosts or ufos are we we're, we're talking about an animal that we know exists it's just that we're talking about it being in a place where nobody's used to seeing it yeah um so it's mainstreaming it in, in a way yeah yeah and i've noticed that when i book for these rural shows and they the, the person taking the booking is 
classifying you and where you should go they struggle you know they don't know where to put to put the big cat information tent uh, do they put it in with all the other wildlife groups or the hunting shooting and fishing lot and often you get your own little isolated sort of spot and but people find you it's a very good way of actually meeting the punters and some people are absolutely delighted and relieved to have it as an outlet for their story for their situation but it's not just witnesses, you know, you will get on an average day 15 or so witnesses report to you and fill out a form and talk about it for anything up to three quarters of an hour mm. and be delighted to do that and feel that, you know, that they... It's almost like, um, to some people it feel, feels like a confessional's sort of box situation. To other people it seems a bit, a bit of closure because they've never been able to have an outlet for it. Um, but for a lot of other people, it's curiosity in, in a positive way. I think people who are um, more scoffing and sceptical and refuse to believe and think it's just off the wall are probably unlikely to come in and engage anyway. But it's interesting mm. when some of those people do because I think if you're calm and reasonable and dignified with those people, they calm down. And I have to say, I think some of the more positive skeptics have become good contacts a few of them or certainly they've got gone away being felt that the subject's been represented in in a pleasant decent dignified way because i want to I'm, i think it's important that you do if you've got an unorthodox topic that you're one of the people who represents if your representation uh, you know is your representation is important you you must um help the positive um respect for that subject uh, i think particularly if it's uh if it's a edgy you know marginal subject by bringing it into the, the mainstream you've got an almost um responsibility to be respectful and professional and and organized and and um well-mannered in doing that you mentioned about closure for a witness but i was also thinking that uh, if you've got a witness within a family group who is adamant about what they've seen but other members of that group aren't so sure I, I can imagine you being at a show is quite validating for them as well so you know nudge the other half and say look told you uh, it's uh, do you ever get situations like that yeah and it's i've seen both ways both resolutions whereas people i think if people are in a family or people with friends who are skeptics and just have a fixed position and refuse to believe no matter how much reinforcing comment and examples you can provide you can't shift them you can't influence people who who refuse to believe but in other cases i have yeah and and at talks I, i've i've had people come with their friends and their friends have been influenced but yeah people have closed minds and you can't shift yeah. closed minds it must be very helpful for those witnesses that you're as up on the topic as you are are you self-educated in this and, and how have you learned as much as you have about this topic yeah largely self-educated actually uh, obviously i've got to know a bit about uh, nature conservation through my professional background in that although i'm not a sort of good field naturalist like some of my friends and contacts but it's a very multidisciplinary subject actually and nobody knows this complete overview it's uh, to have a holistic view is very tricky but i've done as much as i can um partnering with different people with different backgrounds in different aspects of the subject and even the sense of um judging carcasses you know how, how these cats 
predate and, and what signs they leave. It's more of an art than a science. You know, you can sometimes get uh, people who, like me, feel we actually can't make a definitive assessment on, on that carcass. It's, you know, for these reasons it's cat-related, for those reasons it doesn't quite tick the box. So I think you've got to be prepared to recognise a lot of these cases and the evidence you're looking at doesn't have definitive judgments to be made you are just making an assessment and basing basing on what you've got in front of you what the witness is saying what the informants are saying what the field evidence physically is there in front of you and you're just judging it is it reasonable to think that might have been so yeah i think um it's a very uh, very varied range of skill sets that that are in this sort of investigation of big cats it's not you can't just step out of doing a university degree in zoology that specialized in wild felids and be ready to tackle this topic and i would have thought at the practical level veterinary experience in the UK is much different to how it would be say in um, the mountains of America where if you've got bobcats etc um, is, is that fair to say because vets in the UK would not come across this all the time would they? No uh, and a few have been because they've been asked to examine carcasses and, and injured pets and uh, injured dogs for example and some yeah. some vets or and horses horses would be one in particular <coughs> horse impacts and I found that some vets have gone from not being exposed to the subject and maybe being uh, naturally sceptical to thinking well there's only one thing that could have happened here a big predator has been involved in fact I have I was at a case where a sheep was being examined with a vet uh, I was very sure that it was a big cat involvement the, the vet was sceptical but he his assessment and what he wrote down on the form for insurance, well, he didn't have to state big cat, he just had to say predator for the insurance. Uh, this uh, sheep, and it was a big Charolais um, um, pedigree sheep, uh, need, needs a lot of taking down. What, this uh, sheep has been uh, uh, predated with severe trauma to the trachea, so um, tr punctured at the windpipe, um, clamped at the windpipe, suffocated at the windpipe, and then gorged at the, from behind from the back and he was very short it was big cat impact so wow. that, you know that was that one bit of um, physical evidence he was exposed to he changed his mind straight away I've seen other vets make assessments of horse attacks and things and not being sure another and in one case a vet made a, a diagnosis made a conclusion of a horse attack likely being big cat related when I didn't think it was and it was just a judgment I thought it was more likely to be other scars and impacts from barbed wire or whatever but not necessarily what I'd expect from the patterns of impact if a, if a had been mounted you know and, and grappled with by a, a, a puma or a black leopard. For listeners who have not heard you before and haven't heard your podcast let's talk if we can about where this has come from it, I, I can imagine a lot of people will go big cats in the UK doesn't make any sense um, however there is quite a a common sense reason for them being here in the first place isn't there ha, ha, could you tell us a bit more about how big cats came to be here mm. yeah in a way it is understandable it's not that weird they were trophy pets in some 
places they are still are trophy pets and I think it first happened they first sort of got out out of captivity from wartime situations where people had collections of, of one or more and needed to feed them meat because they are what's called an obligate carnivore so they're strict carnivores you can't supplement their diet with vegetable matter like you can with a dog dogs more of an omnivore but a cat needs meat and in wartime situations how are you going to get your meat for, for 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 a collection of cats? So I think they started getting leaking out, as it were, from collections from wartime onwards. Then there was the 1976 Dangerous Wild Animals Act, which clamped down on people having them in sort of leaky or or um, not terribly well maintained domestic situations. People would have have them roaming around their flats or and walking them in the park on a leash. You know, a puma or a black leopard or whatever, um, in, in a situation where it could, you know, you're just relying on human, um, human physical endeavour to keep them uh, well behaved. And there were cases where they would um, sometimes uh, get out. Uh, I think that, that also there's been leaky zoos, uh, fences of zoos have, have had um, trees crash through them. There was okay. a case on the Isle of Wight where a puma got out and it wasn't recaptured as far as we know. And that was a that was a, um, a a fencing issue. So you, there, there are different reasons why they could get out. I think the other allegation I've had in several situations is they've been used as like heavy duty guard dogs. You know, guarding animals for ah, right. uh, metal um, metal processing um, situations or butchers or um, all kinds of activities. I heard that several times. Uh, I think also they get used as um, dubious cargo you know on boats and and uh, trade in exotic animals is is um uh it's quite dubious and uh, they can be um again they can leak out of of, of um situations like sh um being being um Ill Ill illegally traded so there's there's various ways that they can get out but the ones that are are seen in britain are the ones that are generalists so various other exotic animals and and big cats could get out but they would be seen or they would be caught up with because their nature of the, what they do their their behavior would give them away because they'd be specialists well the ones that are repeatedly seen in britain are the generalists that could survive undercover without being seen because they've got no specialist needs so if we had cheetahs in britain we would see them because cheetahs are not ambush predators. They run their prey down in the open. Now these cats are ambush predators, so they you know they, they stay under cover and just make a short dart in the spring to bring their prey down. So you'd hardly see that in their native countries, let alone here. They don't um, swim like if we had jaguars. If the black panther type cats here were jaguars in their black form, well we'd expect to see them swimming and at riversides because that's what jaguars do. They've got that speciality. Well. Leopards don't tend to do that. Leopards are real generalists. They, just like the mountain lion, the puma type, the tan-coloured one, they can survive in a whole range of temperatures and environments and um, and diff different geographical situations in their natural range across the uh, across the globe. So Britain's a perfect situation for them. Plenty of prey, and the temperatures aren't extreme. Extreme. We don't have extreme cold. We don't have extreme hot. So they manage here fine. If they get out, there's a source population. You'd expect them to be able to do well here. That seems what's happening. The escape from zoos sounds like something that could happen. With the 
uh, was it the Wild Animals Act? Dangerous Days? Wild Animals Dangerous Act, 1976. Yeah. Okay. That, for, for animals to be turned out as a result of that, that's quite shocking, isn't it? But apparently it did happen. The, the trouble is a lot of these things are difficult to prove. These allegations are difficult to prove because it's obviously sensitive stuff and nobody, not many people are going to admit to it. But there's mm. that many allegations. But, w- of course, what we do know from the 76 legislation is a lot of zoos and wildlife parks did get consulted about taking in exotic pets, including big cats. Okay. So you know, the, the no peop- smoke without fire. Yeah, people did need to get rid of um, them be- because they were they were going to be uh, regulated much more severely, and it was going to become more costly. We're not just talking about the UK, are we? We, we? I know from listening to your podcast that we've had sightings in Ireland and in France. What about the rest of mainland Europe? Is this a phenomena that goes on all across the world, or is it? Um, are we just lucky here? Certainly keeping these cats as trophy pets happens elsewhere, in Europe especially, and there are credible reports of uh, similar cats being seen in uh, on continental Europe. And we've done a podcast episode from Spain, for example, and, and uh, that one was assumed, from what the information that that was with that case, it was assumed that was a circus, actually, that uh, deposited one. Uh, and they were they were being um, caught up with by the police for having other um, unlicensed animals that they were that they were hoiking about. So, uh, in fact, I think at that case they left a dead baby giraffe somewhere as well at the same time that that black panther animal got out. Um, and of course, once one is freshly out, it's a bit more bumbling and a bit more. No, it, ha- it hasn't learned to be streetwise and, and so stealthy and they can be seen in their early days out they can be more seen and easily filmed and I remember there was good footage from Hungary uh, I think it was last year within the last two years very good footage of a black panther in Hungary and you just thought A that's been very easy to film out in the open and B it does not look like it knows quite where it's going and what it's doing it looks a bit more bewildered than it should be out in the wild and maybe that one's a fresh release a fresh or or um or has escaped somewhere from a, from an owner so yeah it goes on i elsewhere i don't think that elsewhere in europe there's situations where it really is routine and ongoing in terms of credible consistent reporting like we have in britain so what that might suggest is there are episodes of releases and escapees but there's no kind of viable ongoing breeding because i think we have breeding of them in this country they're they're breeding they're slowly naturalizing perhaps and the issue would be have we got a viable population within decades time that i I think we probably have because all the signs are at the moment is that they don't seem to be inbred they seem to be healthy confident fit animals very confident in their own environment a a genetic diversity that's wide enough to allow them to continue so how many animals would that take in a country the size of the UK? Well the general rule for these cats in terms of genetic diversity and that that you need to avoid any inbreeding problems is about 300. So if we were going to, the the, the population needs to be about 300. 
if you were going to reintroduce links to Britain, which mm. there's a live debate about that now, obviously you do it in clusters and incrementally to build up. You couldn't get 300 out straight away all of all, all the time. There's a practical issue of doing that. There's also a sort of um, public attitudes, public awareness, and public acceptability issue of of, of, of doing that. But it, a project like that would be what getting more confident the more it was beyond 200 you know 200 250 individuals and then you're thinking you know we're closer to our 300 target that we need for an ongoing viable population so if we had a breeding population of let's say 300 or even 200 how does that stand in relation to the amount of witnesses that come forward does does that lead you to think that there's a lot of self repression of uh, witness statements in regards to this yeah it's difficult to know because you you don't know what you're not getting of course no, the, the, indeed. Uh, and I would say if we go back to what we are getting the samples of, of witness reports that I'm exposed to I would say that I think 80% or so are credible that come to me and and that they're in emails they're at the rural shows face to face they're at meetings and after meetings and you get a sense of, of the consistency of it you get a sense of the detail that people couldn't make up you get a sense of the conviction and the emotional response and to also talking to other people who take reports they say the same you know not many people very few people are lying very few people are trying to show you up and, and and make a fool of you and there will be a few mistakes of course but I don't think many of those are mistakes and sometimes the reports about a fifth of the reports are with dogs and horses that are also reacting which helps to cement the case and reinforce the, the point so I, I think what I would say at the rural shows a lot of the people who do make uh, the report come in and say that they'll say things like I've never told anybody. I've only told my close family. You know, I haven't ever had an outlet for this. So that does suggest that there is, as you call it, self-repression. I, I think people fear ridicule. They feel an impact on their status as a person. Yeah. There's all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't let on about it if you've had a report. So, But in terms of then working out numbers of these cats in relation to witness reports, that's a very tricky I can imagine. thing to do. Have you had people telling you anecdotally about their own approaches to say the police or government departments like DEFRA and, and how um, the, the police or DEFRA's reaction has been to them has it, has it made them feel that they want to keep it to themselves, has it made has it put a bit of fire in their belly perhaps um, because I'm thinking you're one point of contact for this subject I, I could imagine that if somebody's out walking a dog, spies a big cat, that they may well contact the police because they're worried about people being attacked. So as people come round to you and tell you about it, what, what uh, sort of reaction have they received? Yeah, OK. Well, some people actually say to me, uh, they almost set their conditions. They'll say, you won't tell the police, will you? You won't tell government, will you? You won't get it shot, will you? So... I think a lot of people make a tactical judgment about who they're going to tell and with what conditions. Now, some people have said they did tell the police and I was the second on the list or whatever, or, and some people say they thought about telling the police. 
I think that's particularly if they see one that's close to a school or close to a human settlement. They feel as a just uh, public duty they should do that. Uh, and I, I would say largely when I get feedback from what's happened when they've had the dialogue with the police, they've been treated with respect, the police have uh, largely accepted that it was... They may have still made a mistake, and the police may still think they made a mistake, but the police documented it as uh, an observation which you know needs to be filed and kept a record of, and there may or may not have been some uh, been an event. Now, sometimes the, th the police do actually send out um, forensics. They send out um, a helicopter to, uh, with, with thermal cameras. So the police do certainly treat some of these with great... Um, intent uh, so they must feel some of them are credible and I think the difficulty is these animals are really stealthy they go to ground very quickly if you're going to be noisy and um, with a helicopter or with dogs or whatever they'll these cats obviously go to ground very quickly so in a way the last thing that you want to do is get a lot of noisy people and equipment out you need one stealthy tracker to be on the case for days to catch up with them one in the in the in um if you really mean business but even that's a resource issue and you're not guaranteed success so following up and um and, and what then what is your objective in following up are you trying to intercept the animal that's very difficult so it's very little that police can do really especially with the resourcing issue now in terms of government level well our current government department in england that would have any re sort of responsibility not that they have a remit for it but it would go to them would be defra which is our sort of ministry of agriculture department of environment uh food and rural affairs now i think i'm not sort of having a go at them and doing them down but i think they are a little bit ev evasive on the topic it's um tricky but it is tricky for them so you can understand why i mean what would they want to do on the subject uh, and I think they'd, they'd be if they started getting active on it, they'd be criticised by some organisations and uh, for, for maybe um, spending money on an animal that isn't meant to be here. Uh, some some organisations might might want some um, compensation for sheep kills and that sort of thing if it was proven. Other animal and other organisations might be very protective of of the animals. The whole, the, you know, the whole Pandora's box is opened. And how do public bodies respond when there's different views amongst organisations about what to do and there aren't any resources to do anything meaningful anyway? So, I understand why governments are evasive and why governments are not government bodies are not proactive like I am and other people are because um, being proactive needs means time and resources and then what are you going to do what's the an official position and it's very difficult to enforce whatever official position you might take. I, I was going to ask you Rick about some of the reports that you've had that may have been your most favourite but I was also thinking that I know nothing about your own sighting. Um, when did that happen? Okay, my own sighting, which really got me going into the subject, was when I took a break from a meeting at work in Cumbria just over 20 years ago now. And right. uh, I'd thought I've given the subject no thought whatsoever, really, never been in my consciousness much. And uh, I, I was aware that there were occasional reports in the media, the newspapers, physically in those days. I didn't have a mobile phone at that time. And one came into view in a field, you know, 100 metres ahead of me in profile. And like a lot of witnesses I've heard from since, I thought it was a black Labrador for a while. I had long enough to sort of go through a checklist of, oh, no, that isn't a 
black Labrador. That looks more like a cat. Look at the length of the body. Look at the fact it's not wearing a collar. If it is a dog, it's out not wearing a collar. Where are the owners? There's no owners about. So I had time to work out and, and look at alternative options and figure it out. And, and a different part of your sort of brain takes over and processes it for you. It's almost like some this higher discipline comes in through this checklist. It's very interesting, actually, situation. And then I, when I realised the fold of the land was going to take it out of sight, I sort of speeded up in that process to think, right, you've only got two or three seconds left, absolutely double-check that it is what you think it is. So I had time to be pretty confident that it was um, a, black, a black, slender um, black panther, like a black Labrador, but with a longer body and a longer tail, which is what so many witnesses say. They move totally different as well, don't they? Yeah, it's funny how they move in different ways at different times in different situations. This one was moving slowly, deliberately, purposefully, which is often what witnesses say. that They don't move fast unless they have to. Sometimes people will say it went like a rocket. Well, that's because it has to manoeuvre out of a difficult position or it's manoeuvring after prey. So, the, but it, it is very interesting how they are deliberate and slow and purposeful. And a dog is not like that at all. A dog is staccato, sniffing, jerky and whatever. Um, so very few animals are slow and steady and purposeful in, the, in their movement. But the, And seeing it broadside was really helpful as well. Going back to witnesses for a moment, um, obviously you've got people who are coming to you asking you not to report it to the police or to anybody else. Have, have, has anybody shown you video footage of cats that they've taken and perhaps even shared it with you but asked you not to pass that on or to show it publicly? Yeah, a few times and yeah, and, and I do that. I would never uh, break confidence. I do sometimes have other people who say, oh I'll send you this and I say no don't. If you've been told not to send it I'll try and meet you in a pub or something as I don't like breaching that confidence mm. because we'll only get progress in this subject if we do partner with people and landowners especially and uh, and, and treat it confidentially but of course sometimes you do need to reveal things to be influential and to show people yeah this is what we're talking about things can be taken uh, film footage can be taken so examples I've had at rural shows I've been shown things on mobile phones mainly short ones actually and mainly about, probably about five times I'd say at, at least five times pretty big cats that I think in in no case was, was any of them a black leopard but they were all I think capable or almost capable of taking down a deer so they they were I would say intermediate size big cats way bigger than a big feral but not quite a black leopard uh, and they seem to be more like a standard domestic cat only a mutant massive one and yeah, shot and uh, so people, stalkers and gamekeepers, showing me this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and and them being puzzled and saying, you know, what did you make it? What do you make of this? You know, this was a scary, big, massive cat, but uh, is this what you're talking about? Sort of thing. So that and and that's something which is difficult to gauge from witness reports because it comes through more when you see a body in front of you in a photograph. But the other footage I've seen, which was very good, was uh, nighttime footage of uh, a puma, mountain lion, cougar shown after a meeting for farmers we had at the Royal Agricultural, show, uh, Royal Agricultural University a few years ago 
and uh, my colleague Andrew Hemming saw that as well and some of the farmers came about three of the farmers who came uh, actually nudged us to be to be shown this because they knew their neighbor was coming who, who they'd seen it from on, on his mobile phone and he didn't really want to reveal it and he was <laughs> felt very awkward but he did and there's no way he was going to share it and no way we felt we, we could ask him to to share it um and a few others i have probably about three others that are half decent so but you can understand why people would not put Absolutely. this on facebook or youtube why would they what have they got to gain from revealing their what's happening on their land and everything to lose exactly absolutely yeah but of course the skeptics and other people feel well you know lack of evidence like this means you know lack of progress and lack of a case for it but Indeed. I, I think it probably happens in many kinds of other subjects where you've got a sensitive topic and you don't want to uh, risk the rebound of mentioning you've got something interesting to reveal. So with the benefit of your experience in this field now over 20 years, if somebody has a sighting of a black cat or perhaps a, a tawny brown cat, what, what advice would you give them? Firstly, from the safety aspect, but secondly, is there anything else you can add to that as to what perhaps they ought to do? It is tricky because it depends on circumstance and, and uh, I had a guy contacting me the other day who'd had what seemed to be a close-up confrontation with a lynx and we've always said oh lynx aren't going to be harmful you know there's no records of lynx you know attacking people and he was uh, and he may come on my podcast and it really does seem that this lynx was creeping up on him with intent and he, he has worked out himself that that seems to be very rare and unusual and he's himself concerned about admitting that and revealing it on a podcast because it will send out a message of alarmism as, as he feels so how do you make that judgment about not being um, complacent that these animals are have got the potential to misbehave and cause impacts that, that would worry us uh, and but also be uh, I think just go with the facts and the evidence is that by and large, they don't see humans as prey, they want to avoid us, they treat us with contempt almost, and we're the last thing on their minds when they're going about their business looking for their prey, which is rabbits, pigeons, pheasants and deer in the main. So it's, it's terribly difficult to uh, have, have one set of guidance for this. Mm. I think you have to just have a, a rapport with the witness or the informant and go with their situation and, and just let them take an informed decision most people I, I find take a very reasonable middle way approach by recognizing these things have got the capabilities to cause difficult issues in their locality but if we leave them alone and don't persecute them and which we and it's difficult to catch up with them anyway we aren't you know we we're the ones that could turn them into the beast in the woods if, if you like if we let them be largely they're going to be behaving much as they are which is keeping us skeptic keeping undercover and we hardly know they're around so the hands-off approach is perhaps the best one yeah i think there's a situation where you you know if one is genuinely misbehaving and that putting people at risk or putting people's pets at risk or is overdoing the sheep killing i think that one individual cat has to be considered more of an issue and how are you going to perhaps intercept it or encourage it not to uh, continue its um, its problematic behaviour. But 
that, that's where you probably need a more organised approach than we have at the moment in this country. And luckily there don't seem to be too many cases of that. But I, I do have people who are in those situations and I do feel for them because I think I would like to offer them more help than we can provide at the moment. So that was your sighting and it's obviously started you off along this road. Have you had many sightings recently over the past month or two? In the past month I have had the one of the lynx encounter that the guy I was confronted with the lynx I've just mentioned um, he also saw another lynx um, but he thinks it was a different one different size oh, and right. same situation and that one was a more straightforward profile view side on view of one walking in front of him and he wasn't noticed it didn't take any notice of him so that was the sort of more standard behavior that um, you'd expect so that was interesting and that, that those weren't recent in terms of others recently uh, one in one of the Gloucestershire hotspots which was a puma type we also get black panther black leopard ones there as well and so when you do get a location for a report you're always checking a, as to whether it is in a cluster hotspot that you're used to although you should treat one independently every time really you can't just say oh yeah that's another one in near, near certain certain woods or certain certain common that i'm used to because you know it, it may not be the same cat but um uh, and particularly if you've got different colored cats in the same kind of area that that is a uh, a puzzle you know why have we got black leopards uh, reported or black panthers that seem to be black leopards as well as the tan colored pumas in the same situations is it is there something about the prey base? Is there something about the lack of disturbance? You know, that somehow they gravitate to situations that seem appropriate for them and they must coexist and must work around each other if they're sort of sharing territory or overlapping a bit. So that's a, that's a puzzle. I'm trying to think of other um, decent um, encounters I've heard about recently. Uh, yeah, well, one, a good one which is a good example of dash cams. Um, this lady didn't have a dash cam in what I'm about to tell you but she said uh, she saw a cat on a rural road in front of her and came closer and closer and assumed it was going to be initially thought it was a black Labrador was waiting for it to be sort of verified as a, a Labrador she got closer and um, slowed down completely it was in the side of an edge of a woodland uh, she was parallel to it and it then crossed the road right in front of her windscreen and by contacting me and working out what it could be and looking at going back and looking at google images and reference books and whatever she worked out that it she was certainly it was a black leopard and she was a skeptic you know she she was more skeptical of this um being in devon she'd heard of um stories in devon and uh, exmoor beast stories of the past and always thought they were a bit dubious but it was a perfect close-up um, encounter from a few meters away in front of her car and that's a situation where, on a dash cam, wow, that will be, you know, a 10 out of 10 bit of video. Uh, she didn't have a dash cam. There you are. You know, it's the technology is going to help sometimes. But again, what would she do with footage like that if she had it? So, It's surely only a matter of time, though, that uh, one turns up on a dash cam. Well, uh, we were talking about government earlier. Maybe the first thing you might do with... Um, a dash cam footage is show it to the police or show it to government. I have heard of incredible stories of that sort of thing happening and CCTV footage happening and uh, it going no further. 
I won't say any more, but you can understand, you know, that I, I think that happens perhaps, and, um, well, it's been alleged to have happened, and I do understand that. <laughs> what are government departments and police going to do about it? Issue a press release? And, uh, I mean, a good example of this is, um, on, a, on a sort of softer case, is uh, at one of my rural shows, a ranger from a local council came to me, and he said he was aware of big cat sightings where he worked, and he had an open mind about it. And one day he was asked to examine this carcass up a tree. It was a roe deer carcass, half eaten. And he took it down and felt it just had to be a leopard-like stashed carcass up a tree. It had to be hoisted. He didn't think it was um, uh, hoaxed at all. It was half eaten. It had all the signs of, yep, yeah, that's what leopards do in their native country. This is what's happened on his patch where he's a countryside ranger for a local council. He said for five days, the whole working week, they discussed it in the council at senior level and they decided they were going to do nothing. They weren't going to tell anybody. They weren't going to follow it up because what on earth could they do? They were and if they did issue a press release, what kind of expectations would there be? Again, there were no resources to do anything properly and fully with it. So nothing was done and nothing was said. And maybe that was the best outcome for the cat. Yeah, and this is what a lot of witnesses and a lot of people say as well, that they don't reveal what they could because they, want to, they don't want to compromise the animal they've seen. Uh, they may... I think a lot of people think that in abstract these animals are scary and, and um, difficult things to, to, to coexist with but once they've had the experience and the encounter they, they use terms like it felt a privilege or it was enchanting it was fascinating I said exactly that, I was privileged to see one yeah, yeah. so people don't want to give them away or if they do they, you know, they want to be very cautious and very vague about the location and um, yeah, you can I think it is understanding. Uh, uh, it is an understandable human emotional reaction. Yeah. Okay. So as we wrap up now, um, I'd like to say firstly thank you very much for your time and your company this afternoon. It, it's been a real eye opener into your work and uh, assisting you with putting out the trail cams. Um, for people who are interested in learning more about the subject, you do have a book out. Could you just tell us where you can find that? Yeah, the book is available on all good booksellers' websites, I think. Uh, Amazon as well, of course. Uh, it's called Big Cats Facing Britain's Wild Predators. It came out in December 2011. But I'd like to think that, although it does need updating in a few areas, the principles and concepts are all there. If I updated it, it would just be with more recent examples. One thing it doesn't have is tooth pit analysis, which is the tooth marks on the bones from the carnassial teeth of the cats. There's a forensic way of matching the pattern of those marks from the from the template of, the, of a cat's dentition to what you get on the, the, the bones of suspected prey. And that work's being done at Royal Agricultural University. So when I do the update of the book, when the podcast time allows me, which isn't happening at the moment, but we, we must have a little section on tooth bit analysis because it's a good way of getting this primary evidence and we're making good progress on it. It's good to hear that there's some research going on and that it's just not been shoved off to one side. I think you've got to give Royal Agricultural University a lot of credit for that and it's a good example of a, a university working with people, so a citizen science approach being taken to this. It's back what, to what I said earlier, you know, working with landowners and informants, if they know there's, they're, they're, 
their input is going into a system and we're making progress that's great and i think it is a you know we're all in it together it is going to be a um um, a people's a people's revolution, you know, a grassroots approach to citizen science on this subject that makes progress. How will somebody contact you if they'd like to talk to you? Uh, best thing is to just um, look up Big Cat Conversations on the web, and my email is there. I don't do social media at the moment, and uh, so the email is rick at bigcatconversations.com and just Google Big Cat Conversations for the uh, podcast and my emails on the on the podcast website and your podcast is available all, through all the usual itunes and stitcher and all of that it is certainly yeah and on google google podcasts and alexa and, um, and even on the web so yeah it's a cracking listen rick minter thank you very much for your time appreciate it absolutely lovely to meet you for the first time well, great. I learned a lot from you spending time with you this afternoon, Paul. Again, you know, I've got a bit more experience under my belt from a, somebody else's skill set, so thank you. Much appreciated. Take care. A safe drive home. Thank you very much. All the best. Anomaly is independent media. Comments and beliefs of guests do not necessarily reflect the views of those behind this podcast. Thank you to Dutch musician Michette for our great theme tune. Visit his site at michette.com or look for his work on SoundCloud. Please visit our website at anomaly.co.uk and email us through studio at anomaly.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at AnomalyCast. Watch out for the latest episode of Anomaly.